0: So Revelation 3, and we want to look at the church at Sardis. Um, I don't know if our timing will be any shorter, but I thought we would look at just one. I'm a, I'm a bit under the weather, and to save my voice a, a little bit, I thought I would uh, just cover one of the churches. But you know, Baptist preachers and timing, it might still be lengthy. The church at Sardis, in Revelation 3, the first six verses, Jesus Christ says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of god and the seven stars i know your works you have the reputation of being alive but you're dead wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to is about to die for i have not found your works complete in the sight of my god remember then what you received and heard keep it and repent If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus comes to the church at Sardis, and of all the seven churches, uh, this is the one addressed to a church. That doesn't include a commendation. There's no good word to say about Sardis' works as a whole. There are people in the church at Sardis who love the Lord Jesus. There are people in the church at Sardis who live faithfully before Him. There are people in the church at Sardis who are walking in holiness. We know that because of what Jesus says in verse 4, that there are still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. But Jesus sees these people as the exception and not the rule. These are just a few. The fact that he says there are a few names in Sardis means that the story of the church as a whole is the story of a church in in decay and decline. It's the story of a church that, that lives in the graveyard. That's where the church at Sardis is. And the world around Sardis is a world of it's a world of yesteryear. It's a world of, of the glory days having been and are not anymore. Sardis' Sardis's glory lay in the past as a city. 700 years before the writing of John, when he recorded the Revelation, Sardis was a, a city of splendor. She was the capital of the kingdom of Lydia and later the center of the Persian government. By the time of the New Testament, she's grown into obscurity. Her one claim to prominence is that she is the meeting place of several major Roman roads, an important industrial center, the home of woolen and dyed goods. It's in Sardis that there's a chief cult uh, to the goddess Sibyl, one of the most famous uh, rel- mystery religions of that day in Asia Minor. Sardis was zealous for the worship of the emperor And her city at one time, because of all of the progress that was going around there and all of the industrial work that was going on there, her city was luxurious. Her people had learned to live in the lap of luxury. And because of that, they were not necessarily indifferent toward religion, or they weren't necessarily hostile toward religion, they were just indifferent towards it. It wasn't that they, they had a deep hostility or hatred of the message of the gospel or of Jewish worship or really even of the cultic worship of other religions. It's just that they didn't care that much about any of it. Because of their luxury, they were able to satisfy their own needs. Because of their wealth, they were able to provide for whatever it was that they desired. And so that's become a part of the culture of the city and may be a part of the culture of the church. It seems that the church at Sardis has just become indifferent to the commands of Jesus. It's why he says that they haven't completed the works that he's given them to do. They've just stopped. They've fallen short. They've given up along the way. They stopped before they were finished. We would hope that every one of us would finish what Jesus calls us to in our lives We would hope that as we've experienced the grace of God at work in us, like the believers at Sardis, that that grace would carry us forward from first breath to final cry, that it would be our whole hope in life and in death as we serve and follow Jesus. But the reality is that like the church at Sardis, there are a lot of people who have experienced grace at first, but it fizzles out and they quit before they finish. Herb Revis, the pastor of the North Jacksonville Baptist Church, I think I've told you before, says that there's no crown for quitters, there's only a crown for the faithful. And here the message to the church at Sardis reminds us of that, that there is going to be a robbery that takes place. Did you notice that? Jesus says in verse 3, Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. There's going to be a robbery in Sardis. Jesus is going to steal His church. If she remains unfaithful, if she's indifferent towards His call, if she doesn't pursue the things that He has given her to do, if she doesn't get back to work, then Jesus will take her so that she no longer bears a dishonorable witness of Him in the world. The first thing that Jesus does, as he does in all of these letters, is he identifies himself. And so to the church at Sardis, Jesus says this, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus is talking about something that he is both filled with and control, in control of. He's in control of and filled with the Holy Spirit of God. When Jesus says that He has the seven Spirits of God, it's not to say that there are seven Holy Spirits. It's to say that this is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Seven is a number of fullness and completion. And so this is a way, like in chapter 1 in verse 4, of describing the fullness of the Holy Spirit of God. Remember that in chapter 1 in verse 4, it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. John, he seems to be communicating to the churches the triune nature of God. There, in chapter 1 in verse 4. God the Father is the one who is, was, and is to come. And God the Spirit is the one who is sevenfold. And God the Son is the one who is the faithful witness. And so we remember that and remember that one of the principles of interpreting the, the apocalypse is that if John tells us what something is, we let that stand until we have reason to interpret it differently. And so John seems to have already communicated clearly that this sevenfold spirit is the one Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the triune Godhead. And so we remember that now as Jesus says that he has the seven spirits of God. Jesus possesses and is filled with the Holy Spirit. To say that Jesus possesses the Holy Spirit helps us to remember that it is from the Father and the Son that the Spirit comes to us. That Jesus has dispatched the paraclete, our helper, our comforter, counselor, guardian, guide, and friend, the Holy Spirit to us so that we might be filled with so that we might have power, so that we might walk in His presence, so that we might have conviction over our sin, and so that we might be caused to persevere until the end of days. Why is it that we need the Holy Spirit of God? It is because if we were left to our own, we would quit before we finish. And so the one who possesses the sevenfold Spirit is the one who causes His church to persevere by that Spirit's presence and ministry to us. Remember that the Apostle Paul tells us that we have been given the guarantee of the Spirit. We've been given the deposit of the Spirit. He says to the church at Ephesus, we've been given the sealing of the Spirit. All of those are ways of saying that the Holy Spirit in us is the one who says, you really belong to Jesus. And what is happening in the church at Sardis is that we're finding out that maybe some of those that we thought belonged to Jesus don't actually. Like what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, they have a form of godliness, but they've denied its power. Let me read that to you. It says in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 1, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people. Now, can I just stop right there? Sometimes we read that and other passages in the New Testament that talk about the last days and we think about our day, right? And that's okay. It's right and good that we should think about that. But I also need you to know that in the New Testament, in that time period, in the writing of the Apostle Paul, he understood that he already lived in the last days they understood that the last days is everything from the ascension of the Lord Jesus to the coming of the Lord Jesus a final time. So we all, all Christian people live in the last days. That will help you in this way. It will help you not become so strung out on timelines as you think about the end of days. Because sometimes we sort of isolate this to our own lives or our own century, and we think, well, this is the last day. It's happened um, since the Industrial Revolution or since the Great War, and we think that this is the time when we're really ramping things up. God surely is going to come any moment. I have absolute confidence that Jesus Christ is coming again for his church, and it could very well be this moment. But I think every Christian for the last 2,000 years had the same right to say that. And every Christian from this day forward to the end of time will have the right to say that in the same way with the same confidence. We don't need to get strung out on timelines thinking that things are ramping up that quickly. This helps us to put it in perspective and to recognize that Jesus will come quickly. And that's in the sense of of how he approaches, but not necessarily in the sense of the timeline itself. Jesus says here that he has the sevenfold spirit and he wants us to walk in his way because often, like Paul says, we don't. He says in 2 Timothy 3, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, Arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Here's what he says in verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Surely we could agree that is in view in what Jesus has to say to the church at Sardis. They have an exterior form of religion, but on the inside, they're dead. And Jesus loves his church enough to tell them the truth. So the first thing that Jesus says about himself is that he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he says that he is in full control of his church. Jesus says in verse 1, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now you remember in Revelation 1 verses 19 and 20, John records the words of Jesus and Jesus tells us there. And then in Ephesians, I mean, Revelation 2 and 1, he tells us that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, right? We know that. So, When Jesus says that he possesses, he has the seven stars, he is saying that the churches are controlled by him. They are in his hand. Sardis was in Jesus' hand and Elkdale is in Jesus' hand. This congregation, both the physical congregation, what we see, and its spiritual counterpart, what we do not see, is fully possessed by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is in control of his church. He's in control when we are obedient. And as we see in his words to Sardis, he's in control when we're disobedient. And he will reckon with his church Jesus knows something about every church, and he tells them what he knows, and he certainly does that with Sardis. And this is what Jesus knows about the church at Sardis. In verse 1, he would tell you this, Jesus knows that their perception is not their reality. Their perception is not their reality. That phrasing is, is fairly common in our world today. We hear this a lot of times, perception is reality. You'll hear people say that. And certainly in some people's minds, perception is reality. And sometimes in order for us to get along well with people, we have to play as though that person's perception is the reality when we know it's not. But Jesus is not politically correct. Jesus isn't willing to say to Sardis, okay, you think that you're alive, let's go with that. Jesus isn't willing to say to Sardis, okay, you think that you function like a healthy church, let's accept that that's the reality. Jesus instead says, you think you have a reputation, this is what you're known for being, but this is what you are. Your perception is not your reality. Isaiah says in chapter 29, verses 13 and 14... He records the word of the Lord, and the Lord says this, "'Because this people draw near with their mouth "'and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me "'and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, "'therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people "'with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, "'and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden.'" Isaiah is recording the word of the Lord to the people of Israel when they are in rebellion against God and saying that in the time when they're not living as they should and they have an outward form of godliness, but they are denying its power, God can restore them. God can turn their story around. And one of the ways that God will do it is by breaking down the strongholds among them, causing them to face the reality of who they have become. Jesus can do that with the church at Sardis. He can turn the story of Sardis around. And so it says in chapter 3 in verse 1, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I want us to note five characteristics of a church that is in the grave As you read through these six verses, you come to realize that Sardis is a church living in tension. There are those among them who are holy and everybody else who is unholy. You have to imagine that those few that Jesus says who have not soiled their garments, those few in the church at Sardis, they they must have wondered, God, why have you left me in this church? Have you ever been there? Have you ever been a part of a congregation, maybe not Elkdale, maybe Elkdale, I don't know, but have you ever been a part of a congregation where you looked around and thought, nobody else seems to get it. God, why haven't you released me? Why won't you let me go somewhere else? Why have you still got me here? He did let me go from where I was at. Yeah. 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 I understand that. But it took a while to, yeah. I mean, I, just, I missed it. it yeah. my wife we not get up and go to church. Mm. There you go. I was so involved in men's ministry. Yeah. Go ahead, dog. No, no That's good. I think, I think there are these situations where there's a few. There are a few who love the Lord. There are a few who are walking closely with Him, and they find themselves in the midst of decay, and they wonder, why are we still here? And sometimes God releases us from that. Not all the time. Sometimes God releases people from that. Certainly Jesus intended to release these few from the church at Sardis, had the rest of the congregation continued in their disobedience. But maybe we also have to look at it and see that they were a preserving force. That Jesus, he has one good thing to say about Sardis, and it's these few people who are the holdouts for holiness. But he says for the rest of the church, they're a church in the grave. They're a church that's dead on the inside. The only thing good about the church at Sardis is what people think about it, but... But what she really is, there's nothing good to say, Jesus says. These aren't necessarily from the passage, but they're the implications thereof in our own day. And and I'd like for us to just think about five characteristics of a church in the grave. And here's number one. A church in the grave lives in a world of what was and not in the world of what is. And because of that, it's incapable of coming into the world of what may be. A church that lives in the grave lives in the world of what was and not of what is. And because of that, they're incapable of coming into the world of what may be. Jesus has a plan for His church he has a plan for his church collectively, and he has a plan for his church individually. Jesus has a plan for his church at Elk Hill, and he has a plan for his church at Northside, and he has a plan for his church at Westwood, and he has a plan for his church at First Baptist. Jesus has a plan for his church, and it's incumbent upon his church to not be so focused on what's behind, not, not be living as though we are in the past, that we fail to acknowledge the present and be prepared to walk into the future. There are a lot of folks who study church revitalization because there are many churches, not only in the state of Alabama, but across the nation that are in need of revitalization. And when you look at those studies and how they're addressed, both in the Southern Baptist Convention and outside of it, what you hear a lot is that there are a lot of churches that would be hits If we could roll the clock back to 1950. I mean, there are a lot of churches that if we could just dial things back a little bit to where we once were on the calendar, we'd be ready to go. We'd be the hottest game in town because we're living in a world of what was. Sometimes we like to live in a world of what was. Uh, Mary and I bought this house and it was built in 1968. We're the second owners. Isn't that amazing? And a lot of it is because I just have this thing in my mind and heart called nostalgia. And I want to live in a world of what was a little bit. But if we do that spiritually, if we fail to recognize, as Isaiah reminds us in the 43rd chapter, that God is doing a new thing, then we miss it. We miss the movement of His Spirit. We miss the opportunity to be involved in his work. We miss the ability to impact his kingdom in our own day. And we might very well become a church that lives in the grave. Number two, a church in the grave sees the past without sorrow and the future without joy. A church in the grave sees the past without sorrow and the future without joy. Have you ever known this situation to happen? Maybe it's happened in your family or or in a circle that you are a member of where where someone's passed away and you know you know that that person who's no longer with us was was not the most charitable of individuals they they were sort of rough around the edges everyone had to walk on eggshells around them but the moment that they draw their final breath they are instantly deified we we promote them to sainthood they can do no wrong in our memories have you ever known someone like this sometimes we're that way about our own past the history of the church. Sometimes we look backwards and we forget all of the difficulties. It's not that there aren't things in the past to celebrate, and it's not that there won't be things in the future to trudge through, but it's just this reality that we all know, because we're human beings, we we don't enjoy perfection all the time. The past was not without sorrow, and the future won't be without joy. But sometimes, because we aren't willing to walk into the future, because we're stuck... We're stuck on what was. Sometimes a church will always see the past through rose-colored glasses. There were no issues, no difficulties, no, no hard business meetings. I mean, if you're a Baptist, you've been a part of a hard business meeting probably. I mean, it just it's the nature of it. Sometimes we look back and we say, hey, nothing was ever wrong. It was just the best. And we look forward and we can see no promise. Nothing to look forward to. I've talked to a lot of pastors who are much older than I am and have been in ministry longer than I have, who've served in multiple places, and, and there are always pastors who've left a place that was hard and maybe left under some hard circumstances, and, and they wondered, would I ever be invited back? Would, would they ever speak well of me? Because certainly it wasn't good on leaving. And, and one of my pastor friends told me um, not that long ago, he said, you know, I was invited back to a church where I'd been 25 years ago, and he said it wasn't great. The parting wasn't sweet. There were, there were some hard moments there when we left. And he said, but going back, you would have thought I was the greatest thing that God had ever sent them. You would have thought we'd never had a problem or a crossword. You would have thought that they had approved and embraced every plan that I brought to the church. He said, in fact, the list of things that I left because they wouldn't do, they've done every single one of them since I left. Uh, he said, it just things change with time." Sometimes in the life of the church, we look back without sorrow and we look forward without joy. When that happens, we're in danger of being a church in the grave. Number three, and this is very practical. A church in the grave hires a staff to do ministry rather than calls a staff to be equipped for ministry. A church in the grave hires a staff to do ministry rather than calls the staff to be equipped for ministry. And I'll just tell you this, of all the good things I can say about Elkdale Baptist Church, and there are a lot of them, one of the best things that I can tell you about this congregation is we got a lot of people willing to serve. We got a lot of people who are desiring to be a part of committee work desiring to be a part of teams wanting to be involved in in organizations and outreaches and service projects and and ministries to our own congregation and our community um, it, it blows me away the number of people that are involved in one way or another and and also let's just add to that one of the things that i just celebrate in my own life is the joy that comes with that that there are so many of our people who are involved in ministry who seem to truly love it they they have a delight in what they do. And so I'll just tell you for that note, Elkdale's not on this list, and I'm thankful for that, right? We rejoice that Elkdale's not on this list of a church being in the grave, but we need to know what the signs are so that we don't ever get there. A church in the grave hires its staff. If you ever hear a church member say, well, we hired, they, they, they don't understand, If the church ever moves to thinking they've hired a staff member, a pastor, a music minister, a a, a youth director, a children's worker, if you ever get to the point that you're hiring your staff and not seeing it as the calling of God and the affirmation of the Lord's church, then you're on the wrong footing. And that quickly gets to the place that you see, well, that's their job to do the work and it's our job to foot the bill. And if you ever get into that position, The grave is pretty close at hand. Number four, a church in the grave prioritizes personal satisfaction over personal sacrifice in corporate worship. A church in the grave prioritizes personal satisfaction over personal sacrifice in corporate worship. Here's what I mean by that. If when you come to worship, your assessment of the achievement of worship when the body gathers on the Lord's day, is in terms of, was your heart warmed? Were you encouraged? Did you get a blessing out of something? Uh, was the air conditioning just right? Did we have all the words right on the screen? Did they come off at the right timing? Okay, Do I, need, I don't need to go any further. Y'all know what I'm talking about. If that's the way you assess worship, then that's all about personal satisfaction. And far too many churches that are in the grave are marked by a genuine groundswell of people looking for personal satisfaction in worship rather than personal sacrifice. What can I give? When we gather as a body, I hope you come prepared to give something. And I hope that you always come prepared to give at least these basic things. I hope, one, that you're always prepared to give your intercession for someone who's in spiritual or physical need. The people of God need the prayers of God's people. You ought to come prepared to pray for someone. And we might do that corporately in worship. We might do it in a Sunday school class. You might just be sitting with someone ahead of the service on Sunday, and you just take a moment to ask about their life, what's going on, and you just stop right there and pray. But we ought to come prepared to intercede. Number two, we, we ought to come prepared to give our voices in song. Listen, you, you don't have to have the best voice. We're not going to ask everybody to sing a solo. That's, maybe that's a newsflash, but, but we're not. Um, but every one of us is called to sing. To sing the praises of Almighty God. Because God's worthy of our praise. It doesn't matter if you have a trained voice or a tuned voice. What matters is that you have a trusting voice. That your trust is in God. And so you turn back praise to Him. There's nothing more encouraging in the life of the church than to hear the people of God sing His praises, not only to Him, but to one another. Because we write truth on each other's hearts when we sing. <laughs> One of the joys of the last three or four months has been to sit on the front row or in the first service on the platform and to listen to you all sing. It's a joy to hear you You're singing loudly and joyfully more than you were. I think that's a nod to us making some decisions and going in the direction that we needed to go in. I'm thankful that we did that. I'm thankful that we've done that ahead of calling a worship pastor so that we've sort of settled some ground and we know where to go directionally for the future of Elkdale. I, I shared uh, just today with one of our state Baptist leaders that that Elkdale had some things to work out. And I said, but we did it. You know, it wasn't all pleasant, okay? wasn't all pleasant, but we got there. In the end, that's what matters. We got there in the end. And I said, I think we're seeing the fruit of this. I think we're seeing the reality that we can be a two-style, two-service church and have one heart for each other in the unity of the faith. But when we get on that divide between personal satisfaction and personal sacrifice and lead toward the former than the latter, we're going to end up being a church in the grave. Here's number five. A church in the grave accepts that death is imminent and becomes indifferent toward its impact on both interior and exterior lostness. A church in the grave accepts that death is imminent and becomes indifferent toward its impact on both interior and exterior lostness. I've told you before that when the body gathers, there are always lost people among us. Jesus knows who actually belongs to him and who doesn't, but we don't. We can assess the fruit. We can listen to the testimony of faith. We do our best to discern who actually belongs to the Lord and who doesn't. But there's no meter at the door of Elkdale when people walk through that shows us belongs, doesn't, believes, doesn't. So because of that, There are always people among us who are unbelieving. And certainly there are people outside of us who are unbelieving. But what happens when the church is in the grave is that it accepts what's going to die. And so rather than being concerned and doing something about the lostness around it, we just decide to hold on to the few things that we have left. It happens all the time. Churches that once were filled and active and impactful they come to a point where the community around them has changed and they failed to change with it they failed to heed the warnings of both the lord and the lord's servants and all of a sudden they come to a point where where they hire a part-time pastor and they pay him from the designated funds until the designated funds run out and over time they close off the building room by room by room just trying to keep one room open the one that we can afford to air condition or heat. And it winds up with two or three people who finally close the doors and deed the place back to the association. Happens all the time. And almost always on the road to that sort of decline are the marks, the warnings that we should have been concerned about the lostness inside of us and around us. But those who were in charge had already accepted that the church was going to die. And so they chose not to do anything about the lostness. Jesus knows his church and he calls his church to change. He calls the church to finish what it started or be finished by who started it. That's what we see in verses two and two to four. Jesus says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Jesus says to the church that is in the grave, you have two options. Either you can get busy about the things I've called you to. You can finish what you started or I will finish you. Because at the moment, the church at Sardis and churches like her are a stain on the witness of Christ to the world. Jesus draws a distinction in verses 2 to 4 between those who are a part of the church as a whole, who don't know the Lord, they're not walking with him, they're not pursuing holiness, they're not practicing obedience, and those who, he says in verse 4, are worthy. And so as we think about the distinction between those in the body, the assembly, who actually belong to Jesus and those who don't, I thought it was important for us to note the marks of Worthiness. What, what marks a person as worthy in the sight of Jesus? And I want you to see five marks of a person who is worthy. Number one, the worthy recognize decay. The worthy recognize decay. Jesus says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. To the whole body, there are a lot of people in the church at Sardis who don't understand that they're dying. Uh, they are going business as usual. They're looking to public perception. Well, everybody thinks that Sardis is a good church. That's a good church. You 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 call down to City Hall, what do you know about Sardis? That's a good church out there at Sardis. Uh, you you call the folks at the restaurant who fund their Christmas party, feed, feed them at the Christmas party every year. What do you know about churches? That's a good bunch of folks at Sardis. They pay well, Tip tip real well every year too. But if you ask the people at Sardis who actually love Jesus, How is Sardis doing? Well, the few, they're the only ones who recognize we're dead. See, that's something that happens in a church that's in the grave. Most of the people think we're doing just fine. And no matter how much you try to explain it, they'll never understand that actually they're already dying. The worthy recognize decay. Number two, the worthy remember doctrine. What does Jesus have to tell those who are sin sick, those who are dying in the church's heart? As he says, remember then what you received and heard. It's as though they've heard this, they've begun a walk with Him, they've started on the right path, they were building the church as it ought to be, but somewhere along the way they got sidetracked and they began to do other things and preach other messages and follow other ways. So Jesus has to tell them, remember what you heard at first and do it. So What does that say about a person who's worthy in the eyes of Holy God? A person who's worthy in the eyes of Holy God is a person who remembers doctrine. They know what's right. They they know how they're supposed to live. If you look back, I'll just do this real quick. If you look at 2 Timothy, Paul says this, In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul tells us this: He says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, I'm going to give you four things real quick. This is not a part of the message, but I'm going to give them to you anyways. They're good. It's a four-point outline on 2 Timothy 3 and 16. So if you need a Sunday school lesson sometimes, here you go. Herb Revis, one of my favorite preachers, says. 2 Timothy three sixteen is outlined this way. Number one, Scripture teaches you what's right. It says there in Second Timothy three and sixteen that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, training. Teaches you what's right. He says it's also going to teach you what's not right. That's the second point. Scripture teaches you what's not right because it says it's profitable for reproof. It shows you when you're in error. Scripture tells us when we have stepped out of line. And the third point is that Scripture not only tells us what's right and it tells us what's not right, but then Scripture tells us how to get right. It says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof. And then there's that third point, correction. Correction is that coming alongside. It's the the shepherd's staff that pulls us back into the right way, shows us how we're supposed to walk, not only tells us what we're supposed to do and, and, and what we're not supposed to do, but then shows us how we're to do it, how to get right. And then Herbrevis says, number four, the Scripture tells us what's right and what's not right and how to get right, and then it teaches us how to stay right. It says that it is profitable for training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture teaches us how to live a right sort of life. Those who are worthy before the Lord, they get those things. They understand what the real doctrine is and they remember that doctrine in their living. So here's number three. The worthy, they recognize decay, number one. They remember doctrine, number two. They repent from disobedience. That's number three. They repent from disobedience. Jesus says to the church at Sardis, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not, I'll come like a thief, and you'll not know what hour I will come against you. So Jesus understands that repentance is a necessity. Repentance is is key. It's, It's a part of walking with Him. Those who are considered worthy in His eyes are people who repent. There are people who understand that they're sinful, there are people who understand that they have, they have offended Holy God in the things that they've done and in the things that they failed to do in thought and word and in deed. And they're willing to say it before God, God, this is who we are. And not only to confess the sin, but then to turn away from it. To come back to the things that God has commanded them to do. And Jesus says for the majority of the church at Sardis, it's a church living in the grave. Part of their problem is they're not repenting. They're not turning away from their sin. They're not turning toward him in faith. And so he calls them to it, and that demonstrates that those who he considers worthy are a people who repent. Number four, the worthy remain devout. The worthy remain devout. Jesus says about them in verse 4, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. Remember that the image that we see also in uh, chapter three and verse five, the image of a white garment, of a white robe, it's the image of the righteousness of Christ. It's it's his purity and his holiness and, and his perfect standard applied to us by faith. One for us at the cross. And Jesus says that 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 extension of righteousness, that imputation of His holiness on your life and my life, it's something that happens when we come to Him by faith, but it calls us to something. When we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, we're to start living out the righteousness of Jesus. When we, by faith, become holy as He is holy, then we're to be leaning into, living into that holiness. There's a way we're supposed to go. There's a right way for us to live. And Jesus says that those in the church at Sardis who are worthy are the ones who've remembered that He has made them holy. They've remembered that He's caused them to be righteous. They remember that He has put them in white. They walk in His purity. And so because of that, they have not stained their garments. They're living a pious life. Does that mean a perfect life? It does not. I think we know that because we know they're called to repentance. We know that because they remember the doctrine. We know that because they recognize decay around them. But part of their walk with the Lord is that they understand what Jesus has done for them. He's made them holy. And so they're living into that. They are not stained by the world. They remain devout. They're pursuing God in a daily walk, striving to be like Him. Here's number five, and this is the most important of all. How do you know? How do you know who's worthy? The worthy receive direct access. They receive direct access. Jesus says that, doesn't he? He says in verse four, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not sold their garments, and they will walk with me in white for they're worthy. It's certain. They're going to know communion with Jesus. They're going to have access to Him and to the Father. They're going to have that sort of relationship that is what we're to be pursuing. And so all of this brings us down to ask, what is a church that's in the grave supposed to do if we know what what is the marks what are the marks of a church in the grave and, and we know the marks of those who are worthy in the eyes of God then what is a church in the grave supposed to do well there is action that Jesus calls the church to and I want to show you the first 3 steps of walking out of the grave If you want to walk out of the grave number 1 you have to acknowledge your present condition Jesus says that in verse 2. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Jesus says, I make an assessment of you. It's time for you to make an assessment of yourself. It's time for you to acknowledge what I believe about you and that is that you have quit before you finished. You've stalled out on the road of life. You've not done what I've called you to do. Jesus says, wake up. That is to get your wits about yourself. Come on, get your bearings straight, man. Don't you recognize Jesus says that that you've been living in something of a stupor? Uh, I, I'm a pretty hard sleeper. And one of the things I've wondered in, in this whole thing called parenthood is would I hear Jack when he when he started crying? And 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 I will say, thank the Lord, I do hear him. Not every time, but pretty pretty close to the first time I'll hear him. And um, and so, as we've been getting through that, one of the things Mary says, you know, she said, you're a hard sleeper, Nicholas. You, you need to wake yourself up before you pick that baby up. <laughs> Boy, that's good advice, y'all. Because if not, you know, I'm pretty prone to run into walls and stagger a little bit when I'm not fully awake, you know, when I had not had my coffee yet. Some of y'all, you understand that? And so there's something here about waking up, getting your bearings. That's, that's sort of what Jesus is calling the church to. You've been in this stupor. You're, you're sort of asleep. It's time for you to get your bearings again. See, see what's really going on around you. When he says to strengthen what remains, there's a great image here. And this is the image that I've used because this word can mean buttress. It can mean to sort of prop something up to, to hold something up, and so I think about those great cathedrals of Europe with the the flying buttresses, the supports on the outside of the building, holding up the center walls of the of the cathedral, and that 's sort of what Jesus says You need to prop yourself up, you need to build some supports in your life so that you can actually live again you 've got to acknowledge your present condition, number two. The second step to walking out of the grave is this. You must be obedient to the teachings of Jesus Christ. Listen, there, there's no way to life except to trust and what? Obey. obey. Look, we sing it. It's the truth. Trust and obey for there's none to But to be happy in Jesus is to trust and obey. That's the gospel. We don't obey so that we might be right with Him. Listen, you, you can try obedience, but we're not going to ever be perfectly obedient. That's the whole reason we've got Jesus Christ in our lives. But when we trust Him, when we put our faith in Him, it leads to obedience. And obedience is better than what, church? Disobedience. Sacrifice, right? Oh, yeah. Now, what, that's what Scripture says. Obedience is better than sacrifice. We're called to obey Jesus. And the good thing about the gospel is that Jesus says his commandments, they're not burdensome to us. Number three, you want to walk out of the grave, you must commune with Jesus Christ through personal holiness. It's one thing to acknowledge your present condition. It's one thing to to simply try to obey all the things that Jesus teaches you. But if if those things aren't centered in a vibrant relationship with Christ, deep spiritual communion... You're going to struggle to ever thrive in the way that God calls you. Jesus has called his church in verses 3 and 4 to wake up, to do the things they did at first. Because if they don't, he's going to take them away. And he says that the worthy are the ones who walk with him in white. Jesus wants a relationship with His people at Sardis and He wants a relationship with you. Verses 5 and 6 point us to this reality that Jesus will preserve those who persevere. He'll preserve those who persevere It says in verses five and six that the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Jesus says it's the one who conquers that gets the white robe. It's the one who conquers whose name doesn't get blotted out. He's there forever. And so it's a call to conquer. It's a call to do the things that Jesus has commanded his people to do, to be obedient, to wake up and strengthen what remains. And yet even as there's a word to the whole body that's in the grave, there's also a word to those precious few whose names have not been soiled but have been remembered by Jesus. Because sometimes you find yourself among the precious few, maybe in your church or maybe in your family, maybe in your business. You find yourself like the precious few who love the Lord Jesus in a world of people that are far from Him. And you can be discouraged. You can be downhearted. And so there's a word of encouragement that comes from Jesus Christ, a word to remind us that those who persevere and conquer They'll never be forsaken. They'll never be cast out. They'll never be failed to be remembered by Jesus. So I thought we would end by reminding ourselves of the words of the... It's an old hymn. It's been modernized, but it's an old hymn called He Will Hold Me Fast. The Gettys have this song. If you haven't heard it, it's worth a listen. But let me read this text to you as we close. When I fear my faith will fail... Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Those He saves are His delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in His holy holy sight, He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by Him at such a cost He will hold me fast. For my life He bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with Him to endless life, He will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight when He comes at last. God, we pray. We pray that when you look at your church at Elkdale, we pray that you would find many, not a few, but many, who walk closely with you and who are clothed in white, who have not soiled their garments. And yet, God, we recognize the warnings that it's possible. It's possible for us to be like Sardis. Many churches are. Many churches have been. It's because of that that you say, let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The words for Sardis are for all of us. Because we might all find ourselves, if we are not careful we might find ourselves living in the grave. So I pray, holy God, that you would help us to heed the warnings of your precious word and to know the marks of a person who is worthy and help us, God, to live in such a way that we do not stain the witness and the righteousness of Christ given to us by faith but honor it with our lives and help us, Lord, not to fear, but to live in the calm assurance that from first breath to final breath, our life is hidden and it is kept by Jesus Christ when we trust in him by faith. Send us out, Lord, with grace and peace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.